0: who have money, and so on, and uh, lots of other activities of human rights nature, and so on, that that Penn is very much about writing, about literature. It is a a writer's organization. And this event, 18th in a very distinguished series, is a great indication of the kind of work that Penn is very much dedicated to, the fostering of younger writers, the introduction of younger writers by, if not older, at least better known or better established writers. So this is one of the things that we are most proud of, and we're very glad you're all here, and we are extremely grateful to Endicott for providing this lovely space, as it has done before. <laughs> Incidentally, you should know that, that these events are not just a way of hearing each other read, but in many ca- occasions, um, Writers have found agents, editors, publishers, and so on. So um, anybody up here is fair game tonight, let us say. The piece of paper that you have on your chairs, if you hadn't noticed, has a date that, if you hadn't noticed, is not tonight. But in fact, this is happening today, October seventeenth. No smoking. after the readings, there will be a reception. The readings will be presented and introduced in the order in which they appear on the program. Maria Irene Fornes will present Anna Marie Simo. Joyce Johnson will present Nancy Sales. Molly Peacock will give us Suzanne Rodenbaugh, or whatever. Sorry. <laughs> Mona Simpson will introduce Michelle Owens which means that Maria Irene Fornes will come first. Thank you all for being here.
1: Um, I've never introduced anybody in my life, and I am (laughs) very honored to, for the first time that I do this, that it is uh, a very good friend and very distinguished writer, a compatriot, uh, a special colleague because she also writes plays. Uh, and um, uh, she's a very, very interesting writer. She left Cuba in 1967 and uh, uh, f- went from Cuba to Paris where she lived for six years. Uh, and then she came to New York in 1973. And um, Started writing plays. She she had written um, stories in Cuba in her teens, and then um, had um, for many reasons that she prefers that I don't I don't <laughs> I don't remind her because there the, there were dark years that she doesn't want to to remember. Um, and she said, "Don't talk about it." And I said, "I won't." And I I am t- <laughs> I had no intention of talking about it. But here I am, and I think what else could I say? But, but <laughs> what? Uh, the, her writing history, and this is part of it. Um, um, she uh, started writing plays. Um, uh, what she wrote earlier was stories, and then she started writing plays. Her involvement with theatre is um, uh, probably, in some ways, had to do with environment. And but, but I think uh, probably. Uh, a, a the reason why she uh, uh, writes uh, theatre and, and her theatre I- that she writes is so good is because her writing has such powerful imagery that uh, it really enriches uh, a stage uh, with, her, uh, with her writing. Uh, this, um, what she's r- um, reading tonight, however, is not a play, it is fiction. It is, uh, uh, I believe, her, the f- her first novel, and, uh, and it is in... in uh, in, in the in the process of being written, um, she um, however already wrote a film based on this novel, and and not only wrote it but she wrote it and and uh, and produced it and directed it, uh, and it was shown in in a, f- a film festival uh, just about a a month ago or, so, or t- two or three weeks ago. So she's a very a very productive and very uh very active person. I won't say any more. Ana Maria Sim.
2: So I have 15 minutes. <laughs> Please signal if I'm going overboard. Uh, this is how to kill her. One, can you hear me? More Betsy painted her last nail. She turned off the bedroom light, and her nails became a deep red wound in the dark. A few minutes later, she was walking on the snowbanks of Avenue C, protecting her lips against the bitter wind with an ugly Indian scarf stolen the night before from a restaurant coat rack. (laughs) She liked the scarf because it was shiny, like the metal studs on her leather bracelet, like her naturally red hair and perfect teeth. McSorley's on his seventh was thick with smoke and stale beer, like old cheap corner bars. But to this was added a rancid layer wafting from the sweaty underwear and unwashed scalps of its male college customers. A line of such males, goosing, pushing, and fondling each other like football players after a big win, snaked out of the front door and into the sidewalk, waiting to be seated. Sandwiched here and there between the beefy columns, a few bored and generically blonde young females could be seen. On Saturday nights, the future Wall Street executive would throw up against the walls and (laughs) doorways of neighboring buildings. Sunday afternoons, The Greenish dried-out puddles, with their promise of great fun to be had inside, would freshly excite the new boys on the line. (laughs) Betsy worked the Saturday night line. She was implacably thorough, and in a couple of hours, exactly between 10 and midnight, she would make at least $200. Once, the night before spring break, 1987, she made $325. Her blow jobs and hand jobs were clean and to the point. Betsy always delivered, and she would do so inside her car parked across the street under the hulking X shaped shadow of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. None of her clients ever lost its place on the line because everything was over so quickly. In between clients, she cleaned her hands with a towel lid, and whenever her mouth had worked, she rinsed it with undiluted Listerine. Betsy neither liked nor disliked these men. She viewed them with the same remoteness people who are not animal lovers view cats and dogs. <laughs> she did object, however, to some of the odors they left in her cars. She kept two potent air fresheners on the dashboard and would open the doors for a minute or two after each of them was gone. She was extremely accurate at calculating when each, of, each one was ready to come. She would get her mouth out of the way and catch the sticky substance with a hand towel. It's like playing softball, she, told, she once told Mora. Once in a while, out of daring or boredom, she would miscalculate and the white stuff would end up in her mouth. She would quickly spit it out on the towel and precipitously end the session to rinse her mouth with mouthwash. She always made a mental note of the unpredictable commerce and enjoy the challenge of their return visits. The accident, as she would call it, had never happened twice with the same client. Betsy always referred to them with a neutral word, client. To her, the world was not divided into two sexes. There was only one sex, female. The rest were clients, actual or potential. (laughs) Curiously asexual, but sexually needy creatures. Betsy was not dealing sex from her car, but hygiene and medicine and exercise for certain limp and underutilized parts of her clients' bodies. She could not understand how any woman would f- could fall in love with one of them. She could understand fucking them, even if she personally found it not worth her effort. But falling in love, she felt sorry for the women on the line. With their little ones' wan- smiles, they looked like lost tourists in an unfriendly city, hoping to find a nice person who would show them the way back to the train station. <laughs> she never hustled a man standing next to a woman, Once she didn't see the woman in the shadows, the humiliated look on her face. She was still online waiting when they came back and Betsy almost told her to go home and forget the asshole. Instead, she just looked at her in the eyes and smiled. The woman stared back with hatred. Betsy kept smiling and drove away with only $75 in her pocket. She didn't feel like working anymore that night. When she got home, Maura's voice was on her answering machine. I think I've killed her, Mora said, then hung up. <laughs> Two, Mora put down the receiver and the phone cord came off. You're fucking never home, she said, letting Betsy's phone ring 20 times. She was sitting on her toilet seat, naked, except for a pair of shorts. All the bathroom lights were on, bouncing harshly against the white tiles. She was sweating. Where are you? Mora had always wondered how Betsy made a living in the seven years she had known her, Betsy had never held a job. Every few months, Mora suspected that Betsy was a cold girl. She imagined her having two, maybe three steady clients, preferably old men who she would see once a week for a large sum of money. Mora could accept Betsy having a maximum of three steady tricks without it affecting their friendship. More than that seemed problematic because it was not financially efficient and maybe pointed to some kind of unpleasant lack of control on Betsy's part. If there were only three a week, Betsy would have to charge each at least $100, maybe even 150 What can she possibly do to be worth so much money? Mora could not imagine Betsy having conventional sex with these or any other men. Maybe she whips them. Mora noticed that her toenails needed to be trimmed she took a pair of scissors from the bathroom cabinet, but her hands started to shake, and she was afraid to hurt herself. She dialed Betsy's number again and again. She knew that Betsy could whip people. Once, during their brief affair, she had asked Betsy to spank her with Laurie's tiny horse whip. Betsy had done it until her arm hurt and Morris's ass turned purple, a darker shade than Betsy's hair. Mora wanted to find out what pleasure had she given Lori when she had whipped her at her request. She found out nothing. After this failure, Mora hit the tiny whip at the bottom of her laundry bin and Lori, already opaque in her memory, became totally dark, unreadable. Lori would not answer Mora's annual phone call and letter so she could not be brought back from the ex-lover's grave to explain This fucking thing sucks, Betsy said, throwing the tiny whip across the room, not knowing had never bothered her. Mora tried Betsy's number again and got a busy signal. Her whole body was shaking now. The phone kept slipping off her cold hands. Was she home? Was someone else leaving a message on her machine? It's an emergency, she told the operator, tightening the receiver to her ear with both hands. The operator clicked switches, trying to bump off the intruder from Betsy's line. Mora looked down and she suddenly saw Elsa there at her feet, her brown hair loose and full, her eyes closed, her dark lips open, her cheeks flushed, sleeping maybe, except that there was a tiny pool of blood where her right ear, small and delicate, touched the white tiles. the flower shop was like a battlefield after a carnage. The aroma of crushed stems littering the ground as thick as gunpowder. A few yellow gladioli nobody wanted remaining in their filthy vases. The morning light coming through the glass window quivered between sunshine and freezing drizzle. A very old man emerged from the bowel of this vegetable verdon, this rotten antitem he was as filthy as the gladioli vases, and his stank. Mora asked to see the roses. The old man disappeared to the, to the back of the store. His odor lingered, and she held her breath. He reappeared, holding 12 dark red roses. Each had, a, had the long, strong stem, the firm, tight, elegant head Mora had read about. She let her breath out in an explosion that swept away the dust from the counter. But the roses didn't move. They were heavy with meaning and human breath was too unimportant to them. Mora felt humble, a worm. She didn't dare touch them. They were inhumanly perfect, almost sacred, and they made her want to cry. Years ago, she had taken white or pale pink roses to the Virgin on the first Friday of the month, the nuns demanded them, even if it meant that some of the children would, would go without lunch that day. Maura never went hungry because her grandmother fasted on that and many other days so she could eat. Her grandmother would always go with her to buy the virgin's flowers. The amount of money passing from her hands to the florists always made Mora's heart beat wildly as if she were sinning. Flowers were expensive and died quickly. While her grandmother fished pennies and nickels from the purse attached with a safety pin to her bra, Mora would try to understand how could she possibly feel sinful when the flowers were for the Virgin Mary. But these dark roses were infidel swords dripping blood, sexual and tumultuous. When placed inside an elegant silver gray box, they became the right hand of a young Apollo Mora had once seen. The heart Cool marble, creating the illusion—not of flesh, not of human meat that decays, but of the immortal essence of flesh. The red roses made Christianity look sad and petty. This morning at the flower shop, Mora's tears disappeared now under her scarf. Their salty smell distracting her for a moment, for a moment from the old man's stench. She was not crying for herself or Elsa or anything in their small physical world. She cried because she had no adequate words or emotions for the Red Roses. She was a tiny vase that could not contain them. She paid and carefully put the box under her right arm. The street was windy, but the drizzle had stopped. She now had to find a careful and reliable stranger to bring Elsa the Roses. It was to be an anonymous gift. Walking now towards the East River with a flower box, Maura imagined hitting Elsa in the mouth, drawing blood on her fist while telling her that she loved her. That was not easy or cheap, killing Elsa, killing herself. There was no reward. Would Elsa then see how gratuitous and true Maura's love was? Elsa would open the box and put the flowers in an ugly green vase in her bedroom. But the roses were too beautiful. They would invade the bedroom. Elsa wouldn't know at all what the roses meant for Christianity. She wasn't interested in plants or love or religion. She wouldn't sit transfixed in front of the roses, but the roses would. They would sit in the middle of the room, amused by the mystery of Elsa's unawareness of Elsa. Chapter Six. Two things Mora does not allow herself masturbate to Elsa and think about the other woman it 's three in the morning, and Mora can 't sleep, lit by the street lamps. The snowfall is creating an Aurora borealis inside her bedroom. Mora jumps out of bed, runs, runs, slams her head against the kitchen wall in the dark once, twice, she falls to the ground, unconscious. She comes back and sees Elsa's clenched fist going up Jeannie's cunt from the rear and coming out slow and wet and going up again. I know what you're doing, bitch, Mora whispers, but Elsa can't hear her. And if she could hear, she wouldn't listen. And if she listened by mistake or because Mora is now screaming so loud that the whole building, the whole street shakes under the snowstorm. If she was forced to listen now, Elsa would blush and her blushing would immediately turn Mora into a mangy rat who has peed in her cage, a cannibal, a Haitian zombie, a smelly, dark old woman with flaxseed tits, a small mammal with leprosy. Missionaries have always subdued the inferior races by blushing. That is their weapon. Mora crawls back from the kitchen into her bedroom crawls back, cockroach-style, into her bed, and the walls and bedsheets are blushing and lowering their sensuous eyelids, covering their pale blue eyes in embarrassment before her savagery. So late at night, so unprovoked, so filthy the blood trail, a tiny drop-dotted line from kitchen to bedroom to bed to mark the Crawling. The short, dark creature, Mora stuffs bedsheets in her mouth and gags. Oh, God. In a spasm, she kicks her alarm clock on the floor against her will. She's afraid she'll shit in bed. Mother of God, I hate hating. I hate being hateful. I'm afraid I'll get cancer. It's not her fault. It's fate. sacred heart of Jesus. Make me humble, compassionate, accepting. Help me not be unclean. Mora drops on her knees on the floor from the bed, hurting her knees. She promises the Virgin Mary that she walk on her knees on a trail of uncooked rice from her bed to the kitchen and back until her knees bleed. if She helps her forget. Mother of God, I wouldn't mind this as much if I could imagine fucking genie myself, but I can't. She's got no cunt and no brains. Not to be able to sleep because of a cuntless brainless. Other woman made Mora so violently angry that her head and neck went through the bed's wooden headboard grill, and she spent the rest of the night trying to free herself. Seven, once before in her life, Mora was as lonely and unhappy, and she turned to men. She would run out of her tiny room in the Bowery and roam the side streets, her heart beating her fingers cold in an anxious sweat, her eyes unable to rest. She would fuck men in hotel rooms in East Houston or Chinatown. The warm, furtive human flesh appeased her for a while. The anonymous weight smothering her slight frame against the bed was particularly comforting, like a teddy bear, a blanket, a pair of filled slippers. She smiled and nodded, but never talked to them never saw them a second time. She would rip up the little pieces of paper they would give her with her phone numbers and throw them in the mud-thick Bowery gutter as soon as they turned their backs. Sometimes she would stay alone in the hotel rooms after they had left, enjoying a half hour of calm on the stained, cigarette-burnt bedsheets of the Bowery Arms, the Prince, the Bedford. But she was 22 then, and suffering for the first time from a woman, All these years, Maura had thought that something like that would never again happen to her. But now she felt the same pain on her neck, her chest, her right ankle, a pain that seemed to flow with her blood and go into her bone marrow and her hair follicles, a pain on the tips of her hair, on her eyebrows. And she thought again about men. A A man walking his dog across the street saw the dark haired woman at the window opened her mouth as if to scream, but no sound came out. Soon after, Mora realized that she wasn't longing for a man, but for a lesbian whore who, for a fee, would fuck her and hold her while she cried, understanding all, expecting nothing in return. I need a lesbian whore with a heart of gold, she said. (laughs) But there was none. this is it. This is at the end of it. Watching Jupiter as a Victorian child ride atop an eagle, over the stage a year later, Maura suddenly started again to smell Elsa's body. Maura's hand shook for a second, then settled. As if from atop the eagle, her mind watched her body react to Elsa's smell. Her mind had entirely purged itself from Elsa. It was no more her slave, but Elsa still had some hold over Mora's body as this slight tremor provoked by her smell proved. Then the smell faded, the play went on.
3: a teacher walks into the first session of a writing workshop, it's a little bit about the way you must feel coming here tonight. You're confronted with all these totally unknown writers, you don't know who they are, what voices you're going to hear. If you teach in a place like Col- Columbia, you often have some wonderful surprises. There are strong individual voices that stand out right away. For me, one of these voices is Nancy Sales. Her writing is full of such quirky verb, I think I could always pick it out of a crowd. The voice races forward, making you laugh, making you think, making the most unexpected connections. Nancy Sayles graduated from Yale in 1986 and won the 1985 Willits Prize there for a short story. I met her at Columbia in her first semester there last year. She grew up in Florida and in New Hampshire and often writes about those places. She spent a couple of years in Japan teaching English. Now she lives in Brooklyn and is writing a novel. Tonight, she's going to read to you from that manuscript. Nancy?
4: Thank you. (laughs) Mm. I'm very nervous. (laughs) Something happens, call (laughs) 911. Okay. My father was a New York cab driver. His name was F. Scott Horowitz, and he was a Brooklyn boy from Sunset Park. People always asked him about the F. Scott. He hated it. He was named by his father, a Russian tailor, Hiram, who had taught himself English by reading late into the night. His favorite book was The Great Gadsby. What a story, a man who got himself money, class, and a good-looking girl, though he started out with nothing and ended up with nothing, too, dead, because he tried to be something besides himself. Because by trying, he killed himself. A man can only be what he is meant to be. This was how my grandfather read the story. But I think he liked the thought, too, that a man, perhaps an American man from nowhere land, might one day throw a party with an orchestra, and opera stars, and slender women loping about. I think my grandfather liked the idea of of drinking champagne under a pale sliver of moon. But he was always a tailor, and he was a good tailor. His favorite scene in Gatsby, actually, was the one where Daisy cries over Gatsby's beautiful shirts. He read, ''They're such beautiful shirts,'' she sobbed, her voice muffled in the thick folds, and he thought that this was one of the wiser and more poignant moments, although he couldn't say exactly why. My father disliked his name because he thought it was pretentious, although he never said so to my grandfather, and because it it drew attention to himself. He hated anything that drew attention to himself. He seemed to have inherited nothing from his father, who was short and round and rather outgoing and rather sentimental, except for his love of words and books. By the time he was 18, my father had read thousands of books, all of those lining his father's shelves, and more from the Brooklyn Library, where he had spent a good deal of his adolescence. It wasn't that he was unathletic, unattractive, or misfit, or sickly, as is so often the case with us ordinary bookworms, our teeth hanging on to the pages for dear life. On the contrary, he was tall, thin but muscly, and handsome. But he looked smart and analytical more than handsome. At a young age, he had that look of an old soul, of somebody who watches and has somehow been watching for a long time. This look, however, did not jibe well with his wardrobe, which in his youth was always of the finest fabrics and stitching and style. My grandfather doted on him and dressed him up. My father hated it. When he graduated high school, he bought a checker cab with a loan from the bank. He refused any help from his father, who couldn't afford it and had desperately and hysterically pleaded with him to apply to college. He lived at home, but then moved out and took to wearing store-bought pants and a leather cap. And it was then, I think, that he started calling himself Fitz, his full name being, actually, Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald Horowitz. As he passed over, over the Brooklyn Bridge each morning, perhaps carrying some wall street banker or businessman to work he got a good feeling in what he would call his tank he loved to silently read off the names of the downtown streets pine cedar pearl nassau liberty market field battery sometimes if he were blue and i think then well as now he was an odd blue fellow not angry but always slightly pissed off he had no close friends or women in his life just books he would turn off the meter and go driving around his favorite neighborhood for the street names, to where he could read what he thought was a poem: Christie Forsyth, Eldridge, Allen, Orchard, Ludlow, Essex, and he would always turn the corner for Grand. He had certain co- coffee shops where he went where he was known as the Jew, the nice, regular Jew with the Irish name, who read all the time and never talked to anybody. He read the New York Times every day, and James, and Turgenev, and Eliot, and his favorite Tolstoy. And he read the diner menus: golden griddle cakes, chock full of nuts, hot coffee, hash browns, a dollar ten, toast, twenty five cents, in the way of New Yorkers. And despite his reticence to admit to a strong opinion on any subject, my father didn't think there was anywhere that was any kind of real place but New York, and he thought he would never leave there. But then one night, he was on his way home from a day of work, his cab was hailed by an old woman named Elsie Povich who tumbled into the back seat and said in a strong Slavic accent, take me to New Hampshire. At first he thought she must be disoriented or drunk. However, she had with her a large alligator suitcase and a cage with a canary whose name, she informed him, was Tralala. It was summertime, June. Elsie Povich said that every summer she went to New Hampshire, which was dry for her hay fever and she liked to arrive in the morning. She would pay him, she said, as much as he made in a week for the ride. And so with her asleep in the back seat and Tralala la beside him in the front, he drove up at top speed. It was six hours one way. He figured he could be back the next day by noon and go home and sleep, sleep in, spend a few days thinking, reading, maybe go to the Italian restaurant, finish the brother's Karamazov. It was the steepest and darkest highway he had ever been on, and there were no other cars. At dawn, tra la was singing, The sun was coming up over Mount Washington. My father had never been out of New York before. And it wasn't that he didn't find that city beautiful. He did, or he had, had in his cab parked down on the Brooklyn docks, sat and smoked and studied the skyline, sitting waiting for some young man to fetch his girlfriend from a downtown brownstone in September. He had been taken aback by the palette of colors. Up and down the block, the up and down buildings in their browns and beiges, gold, pink, yellows, and reds, and some of the other ones he had never said because they sounded unlikely or ostentatious, saffron and scarlet, the light play of dark railings on the heavy old stones. But it seemed he couldn't remember any of that now. The sun was coming up over Mount Washington in a clear, pale sky, and as far as he could see, there was the green sweep of pine trees, pine, cedar, over the high presidentials. He said to himself that he felt high in the way of discovering a new story for this was what he was always looking for in books, what was real, and this was it too for him, although, although all he knew of it was what he barely imagined, a hopeful fiction, this was the new real. He dropped Elsie Povich off at a little cottage in a wood, not gingerbread, but all stone path and black shutters, a chimney and dormers, slightly leaning to one side. He had a wad of money in his pocket, for she had paid him in ones, As he drove away from her house down the winding streets of the waking community, Montreste, he looked in the rearview mirror and saw that his face looked tired, but not his eyes. He had the strange, spontaneous energy of someone who has suddenly realized that, without knowing how he has come to know this, his life is about to change significantly. Or perhaps he suddenly thought he wanted it to change. Perhaps he was going to make it. But this was no time for psychology or phenomenology. He preferred fiction. And all he knew was that in the way of fictional characters being steered by forces seen only by their reader or their writer, he was steering his cab to a parking place in front of the Tasty Meal Cafe. The moment he walked in, he saw her. It was 1964, and my father was 35. Yes, he'd been living his lone wolf life in New York for over 15 years, but to him, it hadn't seemed to take any time at all. My mother was 19 and felt she had been alive in Montrees forever. She lived alone, and she was known as the town whore. That day he walked in, she was wearing a short white skirt, white boots, and a wig that she hoped made her look like Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. It was tall and coffee-colored, with blonde streaks running up the sides. In a way, she did look like Audrey Hepburn, I guess, with her pale skin and long nose, tiny body and her long neck. People had told her so, women, in that kind of star column camaraderie, and men, trying to avert the their comments from what their eyes found it hard to be averted from, her enormous dinner bell breasts, size 40D, additionally accentuated almost cruelly comically by the daintiness of the rest of her body, as well as by the tight, tight sweaters and blouses which she always wore. In high school, the boys had called her Big Little Rhonda and Rounda, as well as some up other epithets which she liked even less to remember but could not forget. The differences from Hepburn pristine screen presence did not stop here, for her wig was not quite combed. A portion of it was wet from having been hastily cleaned after falling in a puddle of facial pack that morning, and her boots were scuffed from a climb up Mount Agony, a small mountain, on a date a few nights before. On Agony there had been no ecstasy since junior high she had been trying to find it, the fusing with self and other. The feeling she imagined feeling when she read the romance novels from the rack at Spencer's drugstore. She wished so hard for things she had read, how she longed to feel the buttons of a man's coat press up against her bodice as he pulled her to him, demanding, stop pretending with me. Don't you know I love you for the wanton brat you are? Or something like that. My mother was sharp, but neither, my mother was smart, but neither sharp nor practical. Really, she was a dreamer a rabid harlequin reader. Each time she went with a man, or I guess it must have started out with mere boys, she was sure that this was the one who would love her for herself. And yet she could never just be herself. And yet she was this. When she read about a character that she liked, and she liked the feisty ones, the lioness waiting for taming, she would adopt some of her habits, her way of tying a scar for laughing, her gestures and phrases. Think you got me under your thumb, don't you? Followed by a knowing laugh. Well, her addition... I got news for you, or hadn't you noticed? I won't fit. She was 19 and she hated that she was alone. He walked in and sat down at a red booth, never taking his eyes off her. His face at that moment looked like certain busts of Beethoven in a leather cap, although if you had told him that, he would have been mortified beyond description. He hated to betray his feelings on his face. He always hated it that he had so many feelings. It was 6 a.m. and she was there behind the counter, serving breakfast and trading banter with the factory workers and truck drivers who came in every day to eat and see her serve. There were empty booths, but those who had not found seats at the counter stood semicircle behind those who had. They stood holding their cups of coffee, rocking back and forth in their big boots and laughing as she teased them about their beer bellies and their car accidents, their nervous ticks and pregnant wives. It was not a typical scene for a tiny Yankee town. It was loose and gregarious. On a good day, when everyone was in good spirits, and the tables did not turn to teasing her, which they could, my mother felt like Scarlett O'Hara in the scene of the barbecue, where she sits under a wide sun hat, and the men fight over who can bring her coffee and pie, except that she was the one bringing on the coffee and the special K. And pie for Sam the postman. Every morning, he ate apple pie. There was a small lull in the conversation as my father walked in. Strangers were not unknown in these parts, for it was ski country. In the summer, there were hikers and boaters and antiquers, and there was the summer camp and the people from New York. But it was indeed a strange thing to see a stranger so early in the tasty meal. Tourists preferred eating at the quaint and cozy inn, which sold bottles of maple syrup and candy in the shapes of maple leaves and hearts. This was a town, it still is, where nobody ever locked their house or car. And everybody knew everybody else's children and dogs. Probably they had got their dog from their neighbor's litter, which had been sired by another neighbor's dog. And so the appearance of F. Scott, 6 a.m. on a Monday morning, unshaved and unwashed after a day and night of cab driving in New York City and up the eastern highways all the way to Montreste, seized by what seemed to be a sudden psychic revelation, and looking like the fugitive, no, the prisoner, somebody said later, caused a small but palpable pause in the talk of the men at the tasty bar. My mother, with her love of romance, an unwitting knack for prophecy. All was said that he appeared to her like a falling star. She sauntered right over to his table, less excited by the veiled expectancy of her customers than by her own expectancy of him. His eyes were burning, and she took them to be burning eyes. She had seen him see her walking in. What'll you have, she asked. She hoped nonchalantly, her head and her wig tilted to one side. You, he said, at which there was a nervous outburst of laughter, "'Scrambled or over-easy?' my mother asked. The men's laughter became hysterical and ribald. Fitz continued looking at her intently. He lowered his voice and said, "'I want to marry you.' A man slapped the counter with a flat hand as if this were the funniest thing he'd ever heard. Plates and forks rattled as the cook popped his head out of the kitchen to see what in the world was going on. A man choked on his toast. Another slapped him on the back, cry- smiling, crying over to my father. "'Oh, no, you don't, my friend.' My mother felt funny. Isn't it a little early for drinking, she asked loudly. Hey, what's this guy been drinking? Then he reached out for her hand and brought her down close to him. And no one else heard him say, do you know about DNA? Do you know about the double helix? It's like that. Oh, please don't go away. My name is F. Scott Horowitz. My father's hands were shaking. His heart was racing as he sat waiting that day for her to get off her shift. He sat in his car smoking parked by the side of a road that looked over the mountains. He had bought a map and was learning the names. Lafayette, Cannon, Washington, Adams. Beautiful, strong names, but his mind kept going back over her beautiful, exposed face. And he worried whether she would be there waiting for him to pick her up at 2 o'clock, and he wondered whether he should step hard on the gas and drive away. Cars were such cruel things, he decided. They could reverse out of promises so quickly and completely but they were also like magic carpets, and this perhaps like time travel. He had come into another time and place, and now, he thought, could he ever really leave with this detour had he not changed his future, if not his past? But he decided he was thinking too linearly, five and ten cents sci-fi, too legalistically, nor was it a matter of mere predestination. He never doubted that he had done the right thing, but as much as he wanted so badly now, and for once to have a pure faith, he sat and wondered why what he had done, was doing, was the only thing. He sat and waited and worried and smoked, but to his surprise, the time flew. He could see the mountains. He could see my mother's face. Despite everything, he felt wonderfully strange, suspended, and light. He guessed, if there were any words for it, he had fallen in love at first sight. He picked her up and drove them to a clear, secluded place. just day, isn't it, was all she'd ventured to say. And although she'd sworn to herself that this would be the time she'd wait and make him wait and tease him, for he was so self-serious, it would be so easy. The way to really get a man, they said, was with teasing. And although he made no speeches as he had in the cafe, though it was weird, frankly, this was what had moved her, had made her run to Woolworth to buy a new scarf, perfume, and lipstick before she came to see him again. Although she knew nothing of this man as he sat on a summer afternoon in his taxicab car, looking at her with burning eyes and hands trembling as if from fright, well, this was what she did know then, that he knew nothing about how to start it up with her. But this excited and gratified her, for he was quite a bit older, and this also made her feel wistful, although her face showed nothing but acceptable, slow-eyed Hollywood lust as she went down to unzip his fly, feeling suddenly like a mother undressing her baby, for there was something so gentle and innocent about him, grumpy-faced baby, A lump grew in her throat at the thought of ending this era of mystery, his and theirs, so short, ending something that belonged to and was continually taken from the earth and could only be returned, she thought. Suddenly, worriedly, wistfully, peeling back his boxer shorts, she thought, by having a child. But she fought down that pain as best she could and put on her best exotic woman with an erotic knowledge face, for he knew nothing about her. She could be anything she wanted with this stranger. And she whispered huskily to him, I think you're going to like this. I know how to do it real good. But he whispered back, oh, no, no, come to life again, perhaps by the thought of life that had entered into her head as it bent down into his own. No woman had ever gotten close enough to him to get this close to him. The sight of her coming had frozen him for a moment. But now, now he pulled her gently up by the armpits and looked into her coffee-colored eyes. For the past year, she had been seeing herself from the inside of a coffee cup. He looked at her so long and lovingly, though to her it seemed some kind of strange amazement. Something told her to take off her wig. She did, placing it in the back seat. It rested there like a little sleeping hedgehog. She patted her hair self-consciously. It was pinned up and not quite clean that day. She did not look at him. She looked at him. And she could see he was intelligent and that he would not hurt her. And suddenly, cleanly, quickly, all her plans for the cute, sharp things she would say and do with him fell away like slick curtains sliding off a rod. There was one of those silences that enlarges, and a crow sang. Her heart beat as he took off her blouse. And then, for what seemed forever into the afternoon, he cupped her breasts and stroked her breasts and held them. He held his face between them as if they were water, and he he were frozen in a moment, washing with them, as if he were praying or crying or hiding from his thoughts. He held his head between them, gently moving his face back and forth as if to utter a no that means yes. He felt the smooth softness and heaviness and swollen welcomeness, and it was all a comfort, such an incredible comfort. It was a warm day and warm in the car, and their bodies sweated slightly, continually, and from time to time a melancholy morning dove was singing, and the afternoon turned to night. He kissed her breasts, and finally she climbed up so as to have her inside him. She was riding him in the motionless car, and still he was having her breasts and taking her breasts, and then it stopped. They shuddered away from each other, these two people who would never know each other. Rain had started on the roof of their car, and they sat there in the dark, feeling suddenly nothing for each other, nothing against each other. My mother, suddenly remembering when her mother was still alive, It was morning, and she was braiding her hair before school. That was all. Long, strong fingers. Smell of eggs and smoke from the wood chip factory. Plaid nightgown, a faceless face. My father remembering walking with his father on a Sunday in Prospect Park. His father's shoes were shiny, very shiny. The tips of them sparkled in the sun like spots of water as his father walked along quickly, a little bouncy, and he, my father, kept trying to keep up. A feeling of such satisfaction when their feet would fall in sync with each other he could remember the fast clip of their legs together and somewhere above him his father's face was smiling, it was a good day and a hand came down and patted him on his back, the visions flickered out, my father turned on the car and drove them away from the spot, I was alive inside her, already with memories already expanding I was traveling with them as I am with you and we are together I'm afraid there's no turning back
5: I uh, met Suzanne Rodenbaugh in the best way that a poet can meet another poet. Uh, I met her through her work. She's uh, not a student, she's not a friend. I never laid eyes on her until this evening. Um, I came upon her work because she was a finalist in the Barnard Women Poets Series last year. And uh, I read her manuscript, Lick of Sense, What struck me about the best of her work is that it succeeds in combining both narrative structure and lyric impulse. Perhaps that is because her background combines seemingly disparate elements. She spent the first half of her life in Georgia and Florida and then after college and growing up a little bit she went on to do poverty and civil rights related work. Uh, ended up working for the United Mine Workers Health Program in Pennsylvania and then as a community organizer and political activist in Maryland. Now she lives in Connecticut, and I hope you'll take a look at the yellow sheet that you have in front of you um, because writers go to such lengths to accumulate those credentials. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Suzanne Rodenbaugh's gift for brashly unfolding a narrative and thoughtfully exploring an idea makes a poetry that's, in fact, hard to buttonhole. But I find, at any rate, and hope you will find, easy to embrace. So, welcome to Suzanne Rodenbach. Is
6: this close enough? right here a little bit more is that that okay okay I want to read just three poems the first one I wrote when I was taking a landscaping course and I was supposed to be drawing up a plan and I didn't want to so I wrote this instead Uh, it's called uh, the plan for my 40s I'm going to let everything pink and scarlet cover this blue house. Some trumpet vines, some clematis. There will be trellises, loops to pass through into my incipient gardens. I'm going to grow pink, a still bays that flourish in shade, and elephant ears, and maidenhair fern, and some tall white semi And in the hottest part of summer, The pink-veined caladiums will bow in the corners. The ostrich ferns look up knowing how bodacious they've grown along the back fence of my plan. Sweaty at the end of a day, I'm going to drink two gin and tonics. Lit only by a pink shade lamp, I'm going to read in the tone-deaf dark. Before all this can happen, the blue alley and puff balls will rear up prim and stalky, begging to be cut, and I will cut them. Now I know it'll all come back. I'm going to love the worm-rotted wood stump, the dying vines of last summer, and the roses cut back to stubs and looking peaked. This is my bare yard. This is what I make of it. I'm going to work so hard, and then I'm going to languish in the full of it. Reclaiming my name, O'Hara, I'm going to let the falling down sounds of my surname drop around me. I'm going to inhabit O'Hara. Okay. The second poem is called The Shed. And it's preceded by a verse from Ecclesiastes, which reads to him that is joined to all the living there is hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion there's a low windowless shed in the bottomland of Wale, Kentucky flat camp on the muddy creek they call Big Sandy River Pawpaw trees are bearing heavily this year, daylilies grow up wild everywhere in patches and the kudzu spirals up the pines but the shed sits in the heat, the scramble boarded padlocked shed, a creature stored alone in that shed, a beagle hound for stud, living out a lifetime there in winter the wind comes down through the hollows and blows across the bottomland first frost the shit covered ground grows hard and the hound lives on a kind of life and spring sometimes creek and mountain runoff move over the bottom land. The hound lives on. How many years? They say the man who owns that hound has forgotten hunts, the proving ground for hounds. And now the fee for stud goes unpaid too. He's forgotten why he keeps that hound. What the prophet is in it. Still, the dog stays. It's that man's way to pin the seed that will make other hounds for hunt in a windowless padlock shed. He bakes his dog, he makes him ripe, and if a bitch in heat was brought, with the stored seed fester? Has the hound died down into a version of himself? So much he fears daylight. Is he crippled? Is he mean? Is he whimpering for kindness? So softly the sound comes like a slight breeze in the pawpaw trees. And who will hear? Or care. The man may be the limping version of a man across the road, the one with a meat-red cluster of scar tissue stump where a hand had been. Maybe the hound took the hand and ravaged the leg on that side. Or maybe it was the old story. The price the mountains take to take the coal. And maybe after years at low coal and hard times, the man wanted not even the hunt. The tear in the white-tailed deer for his pickup hood. Not even that. But a price for stud. And then that price forgotten and only the man's way going on. I know we all lock something up, a kind of life, in heat and dirt and dark. The price we've already paid is reason something's going on for years. Each dog in us is some way twisted, not let to run, and held close by in the sickest version of ourselves. But I'm talking here about a living dog, a beagle pup, and not some got-up metaphor. I'm talking here about a living dog. From the Ridgeline, I see the shed and only cry my hands cut off from will words my only cover that and my easy loving dogs unduly I know wishes go for cheap from ridgeline and in the bottom land along big sandy river something creeps up on them Smothers them surely. Can I wish an early death? A way out? A piece of someone's hide? That the sound in the pawpaw trees will remind the man and me our nature and knowing it the dogs. this is the last poem agoraphobia means fear of public places fear of leaving one's home Uh, this is called the case for agoraphobia (laughs) (laughs) I should probably say I I shouldn't with this title maybe it sets it up to be comic it's it's not intended (laughs) to be but anyway That is the title, The Case for Agoraphobia. The neighbor man is making junk that clutters my vision. I'll have to see it. I'll have to think why he appeared out of a 20-year absence to live with his taller brother, both of them tinkerers, even at midnight, (laughs) even at 10 degrees. I'll have to imagine their stories. I'll have to understand them and forgive them. I don't want a truck tire in the driveway. (laughs) Or a Morris chair losing its stuffing, leaning back and casually accumulating dead mums heads and if I go out, there may be some reasonable, heartbreaking explanation. there'll be the sickly yellow Victorian with its broken lattices the old drunk man died there the week his son forgot him once I picked his trash can up that was our only intimacy the Ulsters next door to what was him don't speak any English what if they cry out someone will need something Someone will intersect me. I'll have to think hard in a sequence toward a solution and offer up my house, my pots and pans so lovingly and slowly accreting meals. There'll be a man with a colostomy. There'll be a man with a tracheotomy holding a microphone to his throat and in a tone not of this earth singing out, if I had a nickel for every pain I've got, I'd be a rich man, a rich man, a rich man. And what if, instead, the sweet hunchback pushing his shopping cart gives me another heartfelt greeting? What if he smiles and tips his cap and doesn't blame me or ask for anything, but gamely pushes on toward the caving-in mansion? The last palatial house with grounds, the last beauty in this town, and a shelter now for dogs and cats and doves and human men. Thank you.
7: I met Michelle Owens, she was a recent Yale graduate, a writer working at, can you hear me? A writer working at Columbia's MFA program and a very mysterious presence in the office of the Paris Review where I worked. Um, Dozens and dozens of writers in America became familiar with the particularly distinct letters from Michelle Owens. She was always exceptionally generous such a young editor. At the same time, her standards were extremely high. She compared every story submitted, however primitive, to the greats. She considered them in light of Austen and Eliot and Thackeray. And though she was one of the most favored rejectors, she recommended very little for acceptance. When she did, it was bound to be extraordinary and immediately went in the magazine. When months and months after Michelle had worked there, we finally were able to see a long short story of hers named Long Snake Moan, which is now at the front, I understand, of her collection of short stories. We saw what those standards were all about. Um, Really, to me, voice is about the only important criteria for contemporary fiction in America. When I read the first few pages of a story or a novel, I'm looking to see if the writer is giving me an authentic new voice. And Michelle has done that consistently in all her work. Her idiom, her cadences, her diction, all bespeak an absolute authority with American English that couldn't have come about before just about now. At the same time, she has a moral vision and an ability to see things in a structural complexion that can only remind me of the 19th century book she admires so. Um, She's reading a part of a story tonight. Michelle's stories tend to be longer and more complicated, Um, but I hope you'll appreciate particularly the qualities of voice in the piece. Michelle Owens.
8: Yeah, I think now uh, all I have to hope for is that your standards are lower than mine allegedly are. <laughs> say the narrator of this story is a 35-year-old man I wanted out of New York City and into some inno- innocent greenery you drive out of New York though and the surprise is that we're nearly through the 20th century county after county nothing's to be seen but the long march to to turn the whole world into one big suburb the March to which I have to say I'd contributed by raising the cash for some of those developers I was a city boy with illusions, so every price-chopper supermarket was like a wound in my side. I had a hard time finding a place that didn't look like every other place on the way towards that universal suburban culture. I was driving on Route 7 five hours out of the city one black, rainy September afternoon. It was raining so hard that it drove most of the cars off the road, and I was sitting by the side of the road, straining to see through my wipers, when there was a rap on the passenger's side window, and a wet woman blew into my car. She shook out a mop of black hair like a dog. It was a real commotion getting into my car. She was soaked to the skin and barefoot. What are you doing, I said. Bad day to hitchhike, she said, and introduced herself, Pearl Mazzilli. Now, she was no teenager, more like a cultural artifact in her Indian print skirt that stuck to her bony legs and the t-shirt plastered to her bony chest. She had that fabulously unhealthy yellow skin that these hippieish women, who would seemed so beautiful to me when I was a teenager, tend to have at this stage of their lives. <laughs> Bad day to be out barefoot, I said. Where are you going? She shrugged and pulled a pack of cigarettes out of a soggy old handbag and lit one with a trembling hand. I looked at the windshield. There was no going anywhere, though, d- though I'd have been happy to try and bluster through to get this uncomfortable piece of dish rag out of my car. So she said, you're a New Yorker. It's written all over you. You're looking for a house. Well, as a matter of fact, yes, I said. The fact was that I didn't marry until I was 33, and I loved my wife with my whole heart. She cheated on me two years in, and though she said she still loved me, I couldn't bend my mind around it. I'd made some money. I just left it all up to the lawyers, quit the bank in hopes of starting over in the country. It was the old cliche, but to hell with ever looking at another exquisitely sophisticated woman again. So, the woman in my car said, what's wrong with the places you've looked at? I shrugged. The countryside's too cut up. It's all subdividing everywhere. The woman slouched her bony back up against the closed door and said, I know a place you should look at. Yeah? She took a puff of her cigarette. I used to live there. It's been vacant for a while now. Fabulous house, just right for one person. I'd direct you there if the rain would let up. So what's so special about this place, I asked her. She laughed mysteriously. It's got that old house magic in spades. Still a real economy up here, real farmers, I said. I didn't know the area at all. Well, she thought I was funny, and she sent her big teeth in my direction for a moment. I didn't like this pushy ironic treatment, this, I'll just push my way into your car, we're all brothers under the skin attitude. What was she doing out? She was a strange one, with all the signs of a strange, trampy life. She was restless, though. So, she said, grabbing her bag, I can't wait any longer. Ask somebody how to get to Hanover Flats and look at the stone house next to the churchyard. You're not really going out in that, I yelled after her. She'd already ducked out of the car into the downpour and bleared out. Well, I thought, why not? And after it cleared up, I found a realtor who would show me the place. The realtor and I took narrow roads through valley after valley that looked like the picture of rural America that's written on the back of my eye, but roughed up to the better. Cows, brooks, big barns, run-down homes. At the bottom of one valley, at the end of a road that ran straight through cornfields, was a church, a graveyard, and a stone house. It was a small, rough-looking house with a front door that sagged to some crazy angle like I'd never seen. The realtor said it was 200 years old, one of the oldest in the county. The place came with a piece of land and a gray stream at the back, ridiculously cheap. Now, I wasn't crazy about the graveyard next door. There seemed to be about three times as many dead residents here as live ones. But this spot was beautiful. The whole county was beautiful. So I bought. I found that putting money down on something big is always a step towards curing a shrunken heart. I took the place off the hands of the Presbyterian church. It hadn't been lived in in 10 years. Who knows what Pearl had been up to in the interim. There was no electricity, no water, no heat, and fall starts in early up there. Still, they told me that construction could go on inside the house, even in the cold weather. So I decided to camp out and supervise the work, far away from a telephone, and those pitiful repentant phone calls Vanessa was treating me to whenever she could locate me. I spent a week sleeping on a mattress on the floor, making fires in my creosote-soaked fireplace and really getting pitifully lonely. I drove every day to Smithtown for breakfast and got nothing but runny eggs and unfriendly stares. Now, I left New York because I wanted open air and wider horizons, but I liked a conversation now and then. So one morning, I got up and drove three hours to spend $1,200 on a puppy, an English bulldog. He looked like my brother. Our first night together wasn't a good one. The dog kept leaving the bedroom and scratching at the door of the tiny room that sat on top of the stairs. Finally, I got out of my sleeping bag, freezing my ass, and let him in. His fur stood on end and he howled. I took him back into the bedroom and shut him in with me. And he clawed the whole night at the newspaper I'd left out for him and shat on the bare floor. By morning, we were both exhausted. I got a cigar and just let him loose out the front door. This was one of the more deserted spots on earth, and I didn't think he could get himself into any trouble. But he took off like a firecracker had been lit underneath him. By the time I caught up with him in the graveyard, he was in the arms of a young guy out there, trying to bite the guy's nose off and barking to raise the dead. Jesus, I'm sorry, I shouted. Big guy in the varsity jacket turned around, and I saw that he wasn't so young. He was about my age, with graying blonde hair, though still a sort of mild, innocent-looking man. Some music was coming out of a boombox set on one of the headstones, but it was impossible to hear what it was through the yapping. He shook my dog good-humoredly and said, Calm down, you, and the dog did. He's more like a sack of flour than a dog. Not that I mean to be disrespectful, guy, he said to the puppy. It was a Midwestern accent the man had, not an upstate one. God, where are you from, I said gratefully. So far the locals won't even talk to me. Ah, it's just a mystery to them, he said, why someone would leave the city and seek this place out. I'm from Illinois, and I moved out of New York seven years ago. Oh, and neighbors, he said, in the most well-meaning, friendly way imaginable. I introduced myself and nodded towards my house. But Tim Gum, my neighbor, seemed to be a distractible guy. He'd already gone back to looking at the headstone in front of him, which belonged to Mary Shelter's dead in childbirth in 1818 with the baby buried next to her, and an epitaph that said that all the days of her appointed time did she wait till her change come. Tough stuff, I said. Well, depends on your point of view, Tim said. She lived in a cleaner and better world then. She's probably in a better world now. (laughs) He seemed a little otherworldly himself, despite the varsity jacket, and he hadn't troubled himself with a comb yet this morning. "'You studying the tombstones?' I said as some Irish air blasted out of the guy's portable stereo. He shrugged. "'It's peaceful out here.' He pointed his finger around the ring of red stones in front of him. "'This is the oldest part of the churchyard. "'I'm not interested in the dripping Victorian sentiment later. "'The ironic thing is that those Victorian headstones "'are made out of marble, barely a hundred years old, "'and they're melting like ice cream in the acid rain. "'You can hardly read them.' Whereas these old sandstone things, with their hard ideas about being turned to dust, are still as clear as a bell. They're damn comforting. I laughed at him. Well, I I can't say the graveyard was a strong selling point with me. I nodded back over at my place. That's my house. His friendly blue eyes got distinctly suspicious. I bought the stone house, I said. "'Well, damn it,' he said in that mild Midwestern voice "'and crossed his arms and stared down "'at the red headstone in front of him. "'God damn it all,' he said. "'In an unaggressive way, the man was very angry. "'I took a puff of my cigar and wondered about it. "'Finally I said, "'Which is your house?' "'He nodded his stony jaw at a big white house "'on the other side of the church. "'Seemed vaguely Southern to me, columns and so forth. "'Great house,' I said. "'It's a stupid house,' he said bitterly. "'Greek revival, stupid, period.'" He'd seemed like a likable guy a minute before, so I stood around for a moment, hoping he'd recover his sociability. Bagpipes wailed out of his boombox into the cold, clear air, and now and then an Irishman broke in and sang about losing his son to America. The guy's music saddened me suddenly and completely. I picked the puppy up like a piece of luggage and headed back into my house, thinking I was gonna get no human companionship at all in this county. But the next afternoon, Tim Gunn banged on my door. I opened it and he looked like he was about to begin an apology, but he got sidetracked and glanced around like a dazzled kid at my place. By then, I'd figured out that he'd wanted the stone house. Wanna see it, I said. Nah, thanks, I know it pretty well. How about coming with me for a ride? It sounded fine, just great. Well, it turned out that the guy designed toys for a living at home. One of those jobs where killing time's an occupational necessity, and I was unemployed. Tim loved to drive, so we wound up heading out every afternoon in his ancient butterscotch colored convertible, top down in the heat blasting. And we made endless stops along the way for Tim's errands or his enjoyment of some local sight. As a formerly busy man, it threatened to drive me crazy now and then, the way he wasted my time. But on the whole, I enjoyed it, and I wound up learning a great deal. He told me he'd moved to this county because it had never even seen the railroad, let alone a lot of the meanness of the 20th century, and he had no problems going 60 miles out of his way to show me a particularly interesting old house. He lived on nostalgia, the guy, still wearing that varsity jacket, and was full of tenderness for the days gone by when he was a high school athlete, for the space-age 50s we were born into for the days that he knew out of some kind of race memory, when he was a colonial pioneer or a rambling Gaelic scissor grinder. His father was Irish Catholic and his mother Dutch Protestant from a family that arrived before the revolution with the ancestral home in Newburgh a museum now. Me, I'm not a nostalgic man. Maybe because I'm the product of more recent immigration. No DAR on either side. I think that the quality of human life, being infinitely variable, never changes. Or maybe I just think that all times are as bad as any other. Tim always brought his own soundtrack with him, setting his boombox between us on the front seat of the car next to the thermos of good coffee. He patiently explained the difference between jigs and reels and double jigs to me, but I could never hear it. Still, I got the journey excitement of heading over those beautiful hills with the top down and his Irish music blasting. Well, Tim and I hit it off right away. My relationship with the dog was trouble from the beginning. I picked him for a slouchy face and then found out that the breed was completely fucked out. Fred had terrible respiratory problems and he was always choking and then fainting, a sight I couldn't have imagined a bulldog fainting. He got mange and gave it to me and I spent a couple of very ugly nights scratching myself to pieces. He vomited, he farted, he shed, he snored, he drooled. And on top of this, he suffered from a tortured soul. He was constantly scratching against the door of the little room at the top of the stairs and pissing against it if I didn't let him in. Though I can't say he wasn't an affectionate creature, he'd hound me for a couple of pats. I sympathized with him more than I enjoyed him. I let him out one morning and Tim was in the churchyard again, this time with a woman. In the cold air, things traveled. Are you fucking out here to pray for her to get away from me, the woman shouted, and I was about to turn away. She threw something that cracked against the headstone and echoed across the valley. Fred went crazy, and by the time I caught up with the dog, he was biting the woman's robe. I cursed Fred to myself for dragging me into this uncomfortable scene, and I could tell by Tim's face that he'd been dragged into it too. She was a stout ordinary thing with very pretty honey-colored hair. Her glasses were steamed up and she was sobbing. What she was doing out in her nightgown on this freezing morning, I couldn't figure. When I reached them, Tim was leaning over the dog and the woman was screaming, will you listen to me, you asshole? A metal spatula lay across Mary's shelters and there were a couple of chips out of her stone. My wife, Nilsa, Tim said, as if bamboo shoots were being slid under his fingernails. He was a handsome guy, and at first I was surprised that his wife wasn't better looking, though my taste in women has always been a little too fine, I think. Nice to meet you, I said. She was younger than Tim. She didn't look older than 23 or 24. She sobbed frankly for a minute while looking me straight in the face. and When that was finished, she wiped her nose on the sleeve of her robe and said, I heard you bought the stone house. That's right, I said. That's the house Timmy always wanted, though I really think what he wants is to start over again underground. He's so fucking morbid, she said, nodding at the grave. Nilsa, please, Tim said. I puffed my cigar. I'd never put up with my wife whipping me in public. She needed somebody to tell her to shut up. She took her glasses off and cleaned them on the edge of her robe and said, Presbyterians don't like me enough to sell to Tim. So, how do you like it here, she said to me, as if she was now in a nice mood to chat. I thought she was incredible. It's a beautiful town, I said finally. She smiled, full of miserable old ladies with blue fingers because they're too cheap to use enough wood to keep warm. Tim winced at this description. So, she said, how'd you find your house? Funny thing, I shrugged. I picked up a hitchhiker, and she told me to come here. What's her name, Nilsa said. Tim probably knows her. Pearl Mozilla, I said. Pearl's dead, Nilsa said, wrapping her robe around her and stamping her feet. I laughed at this matter-of-fact announcement. Oh, good. No, Nilsa said, wiping her nose again. The last people who lived in that house died right after Tim brought me here. They were a completely unlikely pair for Hanover Flats. The mother dressed in black and the kids here used to throw stones at her and play tricks on her. Oh, she was just an old Bohemian from the city, Tim said with his kinder way. They just didn't recognize the type. She was a witch out and out, Nilsa announced, shivering in her bathrobe. Poor thing though, the daughter. The daughter was an epileptic, that's Pearl. She didn't seem to have much life of her own at all. She died soon after her mother, Nilsa went on. She had a seizure. She was alone. She cracked her head open. Dropped my cigar end under my foot into the brittle grass. Woman said she was Pearl, I said. That's a weird joke. But then she was a weird woman. Although uh, ghostly hitchhikers are a dime a dozen up here, right? Tim smiled. You're lucky she didn't take her head off in the car. (laughs) New York State ghosts do a lot of that, too. Lucky again, I said, and looked at Mary Shelter's headstone, death's head carved above her name, supported by angel's wings. Nilsa was still distracted. She looked up. Pearl was a ghost, she announced, terror ringing in her fresh voice. Well, as ridiculous as the idea was, I didn't like to hear her say it. But Tim had the opposite reaction. Little infant, he said, and put his arm around her. Whereas two minutes before, standing next to his little bruiser of a wife looked like the worst that life could deal him, now he seemed to find her completely adorable. He was completely tickled at her being afraid of ghosts. Tim's endearment startled Nilsa a little bit. She jerked her head up at him, but then she smiled and leaned into him. What a weird couple, I thought. They went into breakfast with their arms around each other, looking both ready to collapse with relief at having hit on a way out of their rage. But whatever peace they made didn't last long. A few days later, Tim knocked at my door holding his boombox, his hair a little wild in his face, and was ready to go drinking at noon.
3: Join us for some wine and conversation near the front of the store. Thank you.